you, if you have a like a belief system where the World Economic Forum is suspicious, central bank digital currencies are suspicious, biometrics are suspicious, clock shots are suspicious, Russia fits the bill. You know, like they're doing everything the same here that they do everywhere else. You're listening to the Corbett Report. Welcome, friends. James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com, in a conversation that is being recorded on the 28th of February, 2022. And, uh, well, it's 2 p.m. in the afternoon here in Japan on the 28th. But by the time you're hearing this in America or wherever you are, it'll probably be 24 hours or more later. So I'm not going to attempt to give you the latest breaking on-the-ground updates from Ukraine even if I trusted the breaking news that was coming out of that region at this moment, which I don't tend to do. Um, But suffice it to say, this conversation is being recorded in the midst of the ongoing special military operations for the Donbass that was declared by Putin on the 21st that quickly expanded to a military operation against all of Ukraine, fighting in or near Kiev. There's all sorts of things going on on the ground now. And it's in that context that I am speaking to today's guest, where, unfortunately, as always, I see people rallying around flags in times of war. And, of course, for the normies in the CNN uh, uh, propaganda-swilling audience, uh, that would be rallying around the NATO flag, and yay, and Zelensky's the big hero, and go Ukraine. Unfortunately, in the independent media, that means rallying around the Russian flag, because if NATO's the bad guys, Putin must be the good guys. That is binary thinking. I reject completely. And I say that advisedly with 15 years plus of research into what is going on in the geopolitical stage. But don't take my word for it. Today, we're going to talk to someone who has a much more closer uh, relation and understanding of these issues, namely Riley Wagaman, a.k.a. Edward Slavsquat, who is at the Edward Slavsquat Substack. Of course, I'll link that up in the show notes. He's been writing and living in and talking about Russia and uh, Russia's role in the emerging New World Order for a while now. So let's bring him on the program. Riley, uh, thank you for coming on the program. Thanks so much for having me, James. Let's start just by introducing yourself for the audience. Who are you? Where are you coming from? And why should people be listening to you? Well, uh, I'm an American. I've lived in Russia for about seven years now, seven, eight years, maybe, on and off. Uh, I originally, like probably many Americans who travel abroad to see the world, I originally came here as an English teacher. And uh, I had the previous experience in journalism Right when I got out of college, I was working in D.C., and it, I got burnt out, like, within a year. So, you know, I went off to see the world, and I came to Russia eventually. And then I arrived, ironically, right when my dawn happened, like, in to basically at the very beginning of it. So I came at the beginning of the Ukraine crisis, and it was around this time I realized, well, maybe I shouldn't be teaching English. Maybe I should start writing, you know, because Russia is now back in the center stage of the political geopolitical arena and it just seemed like a timely thing to do and um so i came to moscow and uh i started working for a different publications uh russia insider also press tv which is iran's state channel as a correspondent in moscow and i eventually ended up at rt where i worked as a Senior editors, they call me, but really I was just a, I was just a, you know, pleb writer for about four years, and uh, yeah, and 
in June of last year, I not not June, sorry, September of last year, I quit my job at RT and went solo with Substack. So, so you were right there in the heart of the Russian disinformation system. You were the <laughs> the Russian bot we were all warned about, and now you're coming out yes. the other side. Interesting, quite a yes, journey. Yeah, the Russian bot. Good to meet you. All right. Well, let's let's get into some of the work then. Let's just start right at the end. We'll start at one of your latest uh, posts up on your uh, Substack. War begins, but why? Where you start by saying, um, well, Putin has announced a special military operation to denazify Ukraine. And you start asking the question, well, it would be very strange for Russia to use military force to denazify Ukraine if the above statements were not true. Talking about Russian government supporting its troops in the, from the Great Patriotic War and uh, uh, the Russian government abhorring human experimentation and other vile crimes associated with Nazi uh, the Nazi regime. But then you start go on to point out some of the, the things that problematize that. Not only, of course, the, uh, uh, the exploding mortality rate in Russia, not because of COVID so much as the Russian government response to COVID, like so, so many other places in the world, but also specifically, you note, not only did the Kremlin endorse coercive medical experimentation on the population, aka the experimental vaccines, Putin claimed he had a moral duty to support a national medical apartheid system, a legislative initiative so unpopular that the state Duma was eventually forced to abandon it. Tell us a little bit about that side of the story, which I guarantee you are not hearing in a lot of the independent media right now. Yeah, so, um, well, if you if we want to talk about... Uh, should we start with vaccines really briefly, or let's how, let's we... start there? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So it's it's really fascinating how Sputnik V gets this sort of free pass, I would say, uh, in alternative media. People either don't talk about it, or in some cases, they even claim that it's some sort of big pharma, you know, serum that stops the depop agenda. You know, uh, guys. The reality is that Sputnik V is maybe one of the sketchiest vaccines out there. The reason for that is not necessarily, well, for one thing, there's almost no real data on it because the Russian government doesn't even have a VAERS system, right? So at least in the United States, you have some way of gauging how, how deadly are these clot shots. Uh, in Russia, not only do they not have any sort of system for that, uh, the Russian Ministry of Health has said that they can't release data on how many vaccinated Russians have died because it would discourage vaccination. Then a state Duma, so someone in the Russian legislator, requested the government to release the most recent Sputnik V clinical trial data. And they said they couldn't do it because it's classified trade secret. It's a classified trade secret to release uh, trial data on Sputnik V. Anyway, we could even talk about Sputnik V for hours, but the point is that this is like all the rest of the shots is an experimental genetic injection uh, that has, has not been proven safe, has not been proven effective, and Russia has adopted coercive policies that have basically forced Russians to choose between their livelihoods and getting this shot. Not even just not even just with uh, tie into employment, but if you want to go to university, there's a tragic story of a young Russian woman, 18 years old, 19 years old, who died after getting Sputnik V. She got it because she wanted to go to university. So it's the same story in Russia, like it is everywhere else. And 
honestly, it's so fascinating to me, you know, living in Russia and seeing this, you have, uh, you know, so many of these alternative media outlets saying that they're, you know, they love Russia, they're pro-Russia, blah, 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 and they won't even discuss that the same crimes that are happening everywhere else in the world are happening in Russia. Am I saying that it's worse in Russia? Not necessarily, but it's just the same, you know? It's exactly what's happening everywhere else. Almost like it's following some sort of, I don't know, World Economic Forum agenda or something. But that's just a load of who. It's not like Russia and the Kremlin and Putin are connected to the World Economic Forum, right? Right. And then, of course, you know, you could get into Sputnik. The reason why I say Sputnik V is one of the sketchiest vaccines, because if we want to talk about the World Economic Forum, uh, Sputnik V's developers and financiers have direct ties to the World Economic Forum. Hermann Greff, who's the CEO of Sparebank, is a board of trustee member of the World Economic Forum. This guy, even though he's a banker, was in charge of basically uh, putting the seed money down and, and setting up logistics for creating this vaccine. He was then given an exclusive contract to transport the first like eight or nine million doses of the vaccine around Russia. Uh, the guy who funds Sputnik V is the CEO of Russia's direct in, uh, investment fund. Uh, Kirill Dmitriev is, uh, is a World Economic Forum young global leader, class of 2009. Like the ties here are actually pretty extensive if you really go into it. Um, on top of that, Russia has agreements with AstraZeneca. They have a, an agreement with them, and the Russian government is invested in AstraZeneca uh, through their Russian direct investment fund. They are invested in a pharmaceutical company that produces both Sputnik V and AstraZeneca. They produce AstraZeneca here in Russia for export. And the original plan in Russia, if you go back and look at what the government was saying, is that they wanted to create a cocktail between AstraZeneca and a domestically made Russian vaccine for domestic use in Russia. That was the original plan. That's, I mean, that's a whole can of worms, but it opens up the other can of worms, which is the bro broader story of Herman Greff and Sparebank and their yeah. relation to the whole COVID policy that's going on in Russia right now. Can you talk about that in some more detail? Yeah, sure. So what you have to understand about Sparebank is it's, it's almost like, uh, I don't even know how to describe it. It's almost like an Amazon plus a bank because it, it does everything. And so it started really doing everything during COVID. So in September 2020, so this is a few months after really COVID mania began in Russia and everywhere else, uh, Hermann Greff came out and said, uh, we're not a bank anymore. We're just going to call us Spare, take out the bank. And we are going to offer a uh, universe of services to the Russian people. So there's spare health, spare food, spare AI. There's literally a spare everything at this point, spare delivery. And it's part of this whole, I mean, it literally just, it just fits into the whole, you know, fourth industrial revolution, great reset narrative. And how interesting that Hermann Greff is a member of the board of trustees, of the World Economic Forum. And what's also fascinating about Spare is that they're very, very deeply invested in biometrics. And they've already begun, there's already plans in Russia, and it's already happening to uh, basically give every single school child in Russia a biometric ID. So in order to go to school, you got to put your palm print down or, you know, get your iris lasered or whatever they do these days. I don't even know, you know. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and Spare is so involved in this. 
there are reports from a few years ago talking about how they wanted, they started testing systems where you use biometric IDs to pay for school lunches. And this was done by Spare, a bank. And so you just have to wonder, it's like, in so many ways, Russia actually is, if you wanted to study what's up the road, just look at Russia, because it's all out in the open. You know, you don't have to do these sort of intricate webs. It's just very, very direct. It's just one line to the other, like Hermann Greff to World Economic Forum, Hermann Greff to education, Hermann Greff to biosecurity. And you can do that across, like, with many different elements within the Russian government. So I would say, you know, instead of looking at as Russia as this place where, you know, uh, that's fighting the empire, whatever you want to call it. Like Russia, in my opinion, is not different fundamentally. What makes Russia different is that the Russian people themselves are very, very, very suspicious of their government. And this is just sort of, I think, something instinctive that they have because of their history. And so that what makes Russia actually unique and different is that dis despite, despite their government in lockstep with the rest of the world, the Russian people are very much opposed to it. And they have been basically since the beginning of this whole scam, you know? And how about Herman Greff and uh, Cyber Polygon? And wasn't Sparebank involved in Cyber Polygon? And, you know, we're supposed to be deathly afraid of Russian hackers. And yet here's this Russian bank, bank that's connected into the Cyber Polygon event where we're just playing around hacking, pretending having hack war games, guys. <laughs> Oh, and so, you know, it's fun. This is a good one. Uh, Hermann Greff also wants to, he's developing um, a cryptocurrency called Spare, Spare Coin. And he's doing it, the last, I saw a Reuters report from last year saying that he's doing it in conjunction with JP Morgan. And it's supposed to be a stable coin, and which is so convenient because right now the Russian ruble is going crazy. It's like almost, at, it's like a, over 110 rubles to a dollar. Now, when I first came to Russia in 2014, it was 30 rubles to the dollar. 30. Now it's like more than 100, apparently, from the reports I saw this morning. I mean, it's just, and you know, also, I mean, sorry to even get off track, but like, if you want to talk about like central bank digital currencies, all this stuff, Russia is at the forefront of all of this. So if you're suspicious of, you know, what I would say to anyone who's like, well, you know, Putin seems pretty based and pretty cool, like just take your if you have a like a belief system where the World Economic Forum is suspicious, central bank digital currencies are suspicious, biometrics are suspicious, clot shots are suspicious, Russia fits the bill. You know, like they're doing everything the same here that they do everywhere else. But you don't get it, Riley. Yeah, that's Herman Greff and Sparebank and, the, you know, the St. Petersburg clique and other elements within the Russian government are working against Putin. And Putin is the one who's fighting against them and trying his best, just like Trump was fighting against the globalists in America. Putin is doing that in Russia, right? Right, exactly. Here's another good example, a little off topic, but a good sort of example we could use talking about this this idea that Putin is sort of surrounded by these fifth columnists, right? And he's fighting them behind the scenes. Uh, uh, one of the major players behind Sputnik V is this guy named Anatoly Chubias, who is a longtime thief who is loathed and hated in Russia. And he goes back to basically the collapse of the Soviet Union. He was involved in uh, privatization uh, schemes mass thievery. He's basically like your arch oligarch in Russia. This guy was put in charge of a company called Rus Nano, which was supposed to develop 
nanotechnologies, including nano vaccines. Like how interesting in 2008. And the first thing he did was he partnered with the Gamalea Center, which is the institute that allegedly developed Sputnik V. And he partnered with their director, Alexander Ginsberg, who was like, we could talk about that guy for hours. Anyway, Jubias runs this company, Roost Nano, into the ground. They're practically bankrupt now. And you know what happens? Instead of this guy going to prison for screwing up a state-owned corporation, he gets appointed Putin's special representative for sustainability. Like, he's their climate change. He's Putin's special envoy for climate change. And he recently gave, wrote a Facebook post where he was like, I read all these great books last year. The number five book was, like, Bill Gates' Why Climate Change is Going to Kill Us All, or whatever the book title's name. I forget now, you know? This guy, like... It's just you couldn't be more open about it. You couldn't be more open about it. And this is the thing, too. You know, a lot of people be like, well, Russia's not on board with the climate change agenda. Like, they'll never do it. You know, in my opinion, it doesn't even matter. The point is that it's just another scam to fleece Russians, you know. And so it's very, very telling that Chubias is the guy leading the way for this in Russia because it tells that Russians are just going to get scammed like everyone else. And it's Chubias at the lead. And he was appointed by Putin to be his like special climate change representative. There's so much that we could talk about and that you have covered. So I will hope, I do, really do hope people will follow the link to go and look at your Substack where you've talked about all of these things and the QR codes and vaccines and all of the biosecurity implementation and the sketchy things going on. But let's turn more seriously and I will attempt to play a real devil's advocate for a moment um, to talk about the situation with Ukraine because it is, I think, demonstrably true, and to anyone who's been paying attention for the last several years, if not decades, that NATO has been inching closer and closer towards Russia, encroaching into their historical sphere of influence, uh, clearly aggressive uh, in their posture, and clearly violating accords and agreements and, and nudges and winks that they've given over the decades. We won't expand to the East. Clearly that is happening right now. Those, those damn Russians keep putting their military bases closer and closer to NATO, um, as, the, as the meme would have it. So there is, I think, a genuine, I would assume, a genuine concern on the part of the Russian citizenry, let alone the government, of a, a, an encroaching threat from the NATO forces. And I think that is coming to a head in Ukraine. And we have the situation in the Donbass with the Russian-speaking people who consider themselves at least pro-Russian, if not Russian ethnically, um, uh, who are being clearly slaughtered um, in demonstrable ways. So this is an, a response to that aggression. How would you frame this, or how would you how would you talk about this in a way that uh, it, it doesn't simplify down to NATO good, Putin bad, or NATO bad, Putin good? Right. Yeah, okay. Well, so first, just to clarify, I totally agree with your assessment. I'm not a NATO fanboy at all, quite the opposite. The, you know, what I would say to people who see it like this, that is, uh, go back, this is what I would say to anyone, go back a week ago and show me one alternative media analyst who said that Russia was going to intervene in Ukraine or, you know, do a peacekeeping mission. They said it was impossible because Putin is such an amazing statesman that Russia would never touch Ukraine. It would only do it if it was attacked. By the way, Russia was never attacked. We should talk about that, though, because they made basically a false flag pretext to go in. Um, I'll come back to that in a second. Russia, uh, people, we went within a week from that will never happen to Russia had no other choice. Just go back and look at the, it's all there. 
And a lot of the analysts were now saying this is an amazing 5D chess move by Putin. A week ago, we're saying this was impossible, that this was madness, that anyone who thought this was a CIA shill. So I don't buy the idea that people genuinely believe that this was like the best thing to do if you were concerned about security. The reason for that is what comes next? What comes next after that? So, uh, you know, actually right now, Zelensky allegedly or Zelensky's reps are meeting with Russia, I believe, like on the Belarus-Ukraine border. That's happening, I think, right now or soon. So who knows what happened? Maybe they're going to sign a peace agreement right now as we're, ta as we're talking. The point, though, is you have not you have not made Russia more safe. You have made you have given NATO a free check. You gave an organization that should not exist, really, an excuse to exist because you you in, invaded Ukraine. You surrounded Kiev with like soldiers, and and I would say this: Russia clearly has done, has really tried. I, I really do believe this has really tried to minimize civilian casualties. They're not doing the shock and awe Iraq, you know, vaporizing people on the street stuff. That's not happening from what I've seen. I've been watching this very carefully. In fact, so much to the point where I feel like there's been heavy, un unnecessary Russian casualties because they've been actually not like the United States invading Iraq, for example. But the point here is, how does this actually increase Russia's security? You, what you've really done is given the West something to rally around at a time when probably there was mass domestic you know, discontent, just like there was in Russia, right? So now you have a situation where you, you haven't really fundamentally made yourself more secure. You've just given your enemies, you know, your enemies, the other side, a reason to double down. Like, look, we were right. Putin is a maniac. Putin is, you know, the next, the new Hitler. Nothing has really fundamentally changed here. It's just, you know, we've just escalated this old meme, this old NATO-Russia meme, you know? So I don't see, I don't see, no one has explained to me how this actually makes Russia more secure. On the contrary, I think that it's actually going to aggravate, uh, unfortunately, what is a NATO encroachment, undoubtedly. But how does this, how does this fix it? How does this make it better? On, oh, by the way, but on the pretext things, I really mm -hmm. want to touch on this really yeah. briefly. This was talked about again and again and again, that Russia would never invade, would never go in unless it was attacked. Russia was never attacked. You know what they did? The FSB, Russia's like, you know, uh, secret services, they made up all these ridiculous stories. Like an FSB checkpoint on the Ukraine-Russia border was like blown up by, you know, was like shelled by our, our, our Ukrainian artillery. There's a video of it. It looks like a shack in the middle of the woods. Uh, and if you go on like Russian internet forums, everyone's like, this is embarrassing. This is such an obvious pretext. They had another one where they claimed that a, a Ukrainian shell landed in uh, Russian territory in Rostov. It's literally like a pothole from like a tractor. And they put, you know, like yellow tape around it, you know, like it was some sort of 9-11 crime scene. I mean, it's just the, they made up all these ridiculous stories that they fed, they pumped into Russian media around the clock on Russian state TV to show that Russia is defending itself. Of, you know, it's the Nazis in Ukraine who attacked us. And by the way, there are there are neo-Nazis elements in Ukraine. I've reported about it before in the past. That's not it's a tr it's a reality. But no one was talking about invading Ukraine to denazify it a week ago. So why are people talking about it now? And like I've mentioned and you mentioned before, my argument is if you want to start denazifying things, 
why is Russia conducting Nazi-like experiments on its own people? Like, denazify your own health bureaucracy or whatever, or Hermann Greff or, you know, all these other creeps before you, like, invade another country to do it. Like, so for me, it's just very, we're going to, I guess we'll see. We'll see what happens. But I, I'm not, if people want to talk about Ukraine as, like, this act of, you know, benevolence and denazification and goodness versus evil, I don't, I think that's a bad way to look at it. You know, you make an extremely important point there that I want to underline, which is essentially, yes, okay, denazification. Um, but what does that mean? Because what ideology are you yourself promoting in your own country? And as you have pointed out, yeah, if you're doing the things that define Nazism, then what what does that make you? Um, in fact, actually, as you start a recent editorial, War Won't Stop Russia's, Russia's COVID Clown Show, you know, by now you're probably aware that the leaders of Donetsk and Lugansk republics called for an evacuation of women and children to Russia. Evacuees who make the trip to Rostov will receive 10,000 rubles, 130 bucks, from their generous Russian hosts. But that's not all they receive. More than 2 million rapid tests for testing Donbass refugees for COVID-19 will go to the Vorostov region. And of course, if necessary, vaccination will be organized for refugees. Oh, how loving and wonderful. So yeah, there is there is that underlying and undergirding this whole issue. But uh, I also want to get to the point of the Russian people, as you say, are perhaps instinctually uh, at this point distrustful of their government and suspicious of what's really going on. What has been the reaction in the last few days? So, you know, you're going to get a wide uh, variety of views. What I find really interesting, just as an observation, is that in Russia you had uh, sort of, I would say, conservative elements within the country who were very, very strongly anti-vax. And I think that they were growing momentum. Even like the communists, for example, were quite vocal against compulsory vaccination, QR codes, everything. Uh, these guys, a lot of them, I want to say all, are very, very pro-war. They, they think that this is great. They think that we're denazifying Ukraine, enough is enough, Washington went too far. At the same time, you have these liberal elements in Russia who were like super pro-vax, couldn't wait to get the clot shot, you know, wear their masks everywhere, and they're super, super anti-war now. But neither side really makes sense because, for example, uh, two weeks ago, you'd have like these conservative telegram channels being like, the Russian government is trying to kill my kid with this with this experimental vaccine. And I'm like, yes, let's go, like send our sons into battle for like freedom, you know? And then you have these liberals who are like, just give me all, every, all the genetic juice you have, uh, yum, yum, yum. And now they're like, oh no, the government cannot be trusted. They're like lying to us. And it just shows like human nature. And that's, you know, that's what I really want to say more than anything is, the more time I spend in Russia, it's not even about Putin for me or politics or Hamon Greff. It's like a it's like a Tolstoy novel. You just get the full range of human absurdity. And uh, you know, more than ever now, I just feel total almost apolitical. You know, it's just like we're just surrounded by madness and absurdity. And and the Ukraine, the actual Ukraine situation, for example, uh, I have a son, his grandmother has been glued to the television watching Russian state TV for the last few days. And she came barging into my room with tears in her eyes yesterday because someone had sent her a video showing like uh, dead Russian soldiers, you know, like strewn on, on the road and, you know, fires and explosions in Kiev. And she was like, they didn't show this to us on state TV. 
And then she called up her, you know, she has a relative, a cousin outside of Kiev. And he's like, well, they're just showing us all the dead Russian soldiers. And they're not showing us the dead Ukrainian soldiers. And nobody knows what's going on. And they're all lying to us. And why is this happening? And it just shows, like, the human tragedy. It's just so, what's the point, you guys? Like, we, everyone, Ukraine, Russia, we've been abused and humiliated and treated like animals for two years. And now it's Slav against Slav, brother against brother. Why? Like, what's the point? You know, I, I get what you're saying, but actually, I guess there is a sense to the conservative side of that argument because the Russian government is good at killing kids, so they should be killing Ukrainian kids, right? There you go. Yeah, um, yeah. Nice. I, yeah it is. Um, it's interesting. Uh, just before I make my final point, um, uh, there have been reports of hundreds, uh, up, upwards of a thousand people who were arrested in the first day or two for or detained at anti-war protests in St. Petersburg and Moscow and elsewhere. Have you heard about that? Yeah, okay. So there have been protests around Russia, not just in St. Petersburg and Moscow. I've seen videos from around the country. You know what's so interesting about the protests is Russia's uh, uh, interior ministry came out with a statement saying that uh, you shouldn't participate in uh, unauthorized gatherings because coronavirus... This coronavirus is still out in the streets, and, you know, it would be very bad if you got coronavirus. I saw a video the other day of a Russian young lady holding a blank piece of cardboard. It's a white, like, sign with nothing on it, and she was arrested, and she was put in prison for eight days. You know, it's like, and this is the country that's going to denazify Ukraine? Like, I'm sorry. Like, it's, And it's not about, I don't think, like, Russia is the most evil country in the world. I really don't. But it just doesn't make any sense. Like, come on. Like, I don't blame, for example, I don't blame an average Ukrainian for being like, why should the Russians denazify us? Those guys are also like total jerks, you know? Like, that's just, for me, that's just human nature. It's like, so solve your own problems before coming into my country. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah. Uh, if every country had just abided by that principle, imagine what a world we could live in. And and you raise another incredibly important point that I, again, I want to underline. Human nature. That's what it comes down to. It's so easy, and I get this for people like myself who don't speak Russian, have never been to Russia. I, I, I can imagine all sorts of things about Russia and project all sorts of things onto Russia. But I like to think I've... I'm inoculated against that, if you will, um, by the fact that I've lived in Japan for 18 years, and I can tell you, everything that people believe about Japan who have never been to Japan is wrong. <laughs> everything. People will tell me what they think about Japan, and <laughs> it's like a different universe. Like, what are you talking about? No, you, you, you don't understand. So I get how easy it is to just sort of project all sorts of things, and Russia and is such a different place, and Putin is this mastermind who's playing 15-dimensional chess, and everything's different, and oh, the Russian people love their government, and their government loves them. No, what unicorn land are you living in? It's human nature. Corruption happens everywhere. And unfortunately, the crap rises to the top in so many of these systems. And uh, I, I would say Russia is probably no exception to that rule. Again, it's not the most evil place that's ever existed, but it's not the best either. And I think people have a hard time with that, especially when they get so much binarized thinking in the independent media. And you raise another good point about um, no analyst that you, that anyone was listening to was saying last week, oh yeah, they're going to go in and start bombing Kiev or whatever. Of course not. No one was saying that. And no one no thought that one, would have been the... 
No one yeah. was advocating that, but now they are advocating that. The ones now it's who the only, it's the only choice they have. There's no other choice. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, anyone who doesn't see through this and doesn't understand that the war ultimately is the war of governments against their peoples. I just don't know what else to say, um, but I'll keep saying it, and I know you will too, uh, at least until you're arrested and detained for your uh, dissident activities. Uh, tell people again about your uh, your Substack and how people can follow your work. Yeah, I'm just on uh, edwardslavsquat.substack.com. I'm not really on social media, but you can follow me on Twitter, just Riley Wagerman, my name. So yeah, I mean, you know, I, I haven't been writing recently because I've literally, I'm literally in shock just watching Russian TV and Telegram and just trying to comprehend what's going on. But anyway, soon I'll be writing quite regularly again. And uh, so please come join. You know, it's also, you know, I, I consider, uh, you know, my Substack to actually be one of the few places where we're not going to like ban you for disagreeing with us, like which is often the case with like Russia related news sites. Like you don't like Putin enough, man. Like you don't say what I think, man. So it's not about all of us disagreeing, just trying to figure out what the heck is going on. I'm just trying to ask questions and figure out what's going on because it's crazy. It's getting crazy. <laughs> it <laughs> certainly is. Well, I've been following your work for several months now. I recommend other people check it out. It does offer a completely different opinion and perspective than you will get in a lot of the so-called independent media, and I appreciate that. Agree or disagree, at the very least, it's a different viewpoint, and I think that's important at these times where people are being herded into one pen or the other. So uh, I appreciate you being there and for doing that work, and I hope we get to talk to you again. Riley Wagman, thank you for your time. Thanks, James.